Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Oh, hello, I really, today I don't want to chat too much um, here at the tippy top of the podcast because I have David Camp as my guest. Not only were David and I interns once long ago at Spy Magazine, which launched, oh my God, 35 years ago this month, but we're both from New Jersey and have a lot to say and share on the subject. Um, David is also a prolific writer, and you probably know him as the author of The United States of Arugula, as well as collaborator now on the new Ron Howard, Clint Howard autobiography. Um, David's also interviewed like every single famous, well-known, interesting celebrity or personage for Vanity Fair or GQ. So the guy, you know, he's always been pretty interesting and he still is. So um, please stay tuned. The most important thing you may learn from this, because we talk about food a lot, is that he has the most New Jersey recipe for red sauce, or as we like to say here, Sunday gravy that you could imagine. Please stay tuned. Uh, and leave, if you will, after the pod, if you listen to the podcast, a nice review on Apple and subscribe. So there will be more nice podcasts in the future. Enjoy. Well, hello, Mr. David Camp, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. I think we have a pretty fabulous podcast in store today, mostly because you already have me cracking up, which should be good. I can just laugh and you just say things. How about that? So you should probably right. say the things. Before I laugh, well, well, also that we're an audio medium, so I can't, I can't just do uh, hand gestures and, and <laughs> facial tics. Right, although those I'll do my best. for me. Do, yeah. do your best. Anyway, I would like to welcome Mr. David Camp to the podcast today. Notable author of many books, especially ones that all food loving people should know, which includes the United States of Arugula, one of the great seminal, and I like using that word around you because I know you would probably say seminal. Anyway, uh, seminal works of food history about the 20th century and the growth of the gourmet food movement. And of course, Sunny Days, which allowed you to escape into the world of Sesame Street and the children's television revolution. So basically, you've gotten to meet and deal with all your childhood heroes. Is that true? Essentially, yes. <laughs> and then um, in, in this other capacity that where I work as a collaborator with well-known people who by the way, I'm not a ghostwriter. I'm a collaborator. I work with right, and you're not sometimes. a collaborator like with the Nazis or or or, or with with the communist regime, you know, circa yeah, 1940s yeah. that that McCarthy would have come after me. But I, I work as a collaborator with famous people who are very good storytellers, but don't have experience putting together a book. So um, the most recent one just came out this week by Ron Howard and his brother, the character actor Clint Howard. It's called The Boys, and it was actually a marvelous lockdown project because we actually all agreed to do it before the pandemic. And then right when we started working, boom, we're all sheltering in place. But it worked to our advantage in that Ron Howard is normally traveling all over the world and has 12 <laughs> meetings a day. And suddenly Ron was grounded. So we had a great time just downloading uh, their childhood history and, and putting together what I think is a fabulous book that if you're so inclined, you can you can purchase now. <laughs> um, I will purchase it. Um, and I recommend all others do too. But that also, so those were more childhood heroes, like happy days. I, I mean, yeah, exactly. 
I mean, that's the point is that is that um, one of the one of the nice things about being a writer, a nonfiction writer, is that it affords this wonderful opportunity to meet everyone. Like if your curiosity takes you far enough and if you're and if you're, uh, you know, the platform you're on allows you to to request interviews. I mean, there aren't that many who have, Charles Schultz was one I failed to get to before I he uh-huh. died. He, uh, I tried. But like, I mean, yeah, I mean, so writing a book with Ron Howard, then him saying, you know what? We should double check some of this stuff. I'm going to put you in touch with Henry Winkler. And so <laughs> last year, I found myself Zooming with the Fonz, who, of course, is not the Fonz in real life. In real life, he's he's much more like one of our relatives, Marissa, where he'd be, <laughs> yeah. he's a Jewish guy who says, look, I hope, you, I hope you're really well, Marissa. Oh, it gives me <laughs> such happiness to be speaking with you today. That's kind of how the real Henry Winkler is. Yeah, he's actually one of the people I want to have on the podcast because I think he'd be nice to cook with. I mean, he certainly would appreciate it. Yeah. Um, You could do a very Jewish show with him. Today we're making mandel brut. And, uh, (laughs) you know. Tell me about your grandmother's mandel brut. What was it like getting these stories out of them? Was it all about their childhood? I mean, did did we go as far back as the music man? Oh, of course we did. We did. I I have, I mean, I can't release this, but I have on Zoom, Ron doing his lines with the la- the raspberry list, like, sister, sister, you know, those, those things he said to Shirley Jones in the movie. Um, the whole point of that book, The Boys, is that it is about their boyhood. It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't go into Ron's prestigious directing career. It ends with him beginning to be a director, which is when he's, you know, in his early 20s. And so it only traces, you know, kind of their parents' story of leaving Oklahoma to try to make it in show business. And then this twist of fate where their kids become more successful than they do. And then growing up. And if we want to bring it back to food, because let's face it, your listeners want to want to talk <laughs> about food and hear about food. I love how food always tells stories of families and eras. And one of the amazing things is they moved in the late 50s to Burbank, California you know, oh the valley gosh. and, and it's the dawn of the fast food era. So the very first IHOP was, was in Toluca Lake, the next town over. And one of the very first Bob's big boy hamburger stands with car hops and everything was there. And one of the very first Sizzler steakhouses was there. So when Ron and Clint tell their childhood story, it's about, and then we went to IHOP and then we went to the Sizzler. <laughs> And like, it's, it's sort of like, and I, I feel like you and I caught the tail end of that, that era when fast food was actually like a cool night out as opposed to, oh, this, this horrible McMeats we're all eating. And like, cause if you fast forward to a generation later, our kids would, would, that would be, that would be horrifying if they said, yeah, we went to McDonald's all the time or whatever. Absolutely. It's the strangest thing that my kids are like, well, which do you think is the best on the road, fast food option, you know, because McDonald's. Mm. And I remember right. taking my Upper East Side raised grandmother to McDonald's for so because she wanted to have this fast food experience. You know, it, yeah. she needed it was a cultural thing, um, and she was appalled by it. Um, right, but, but but at the time, Ron and Clint, it was this joyous new discovery in American life, going to an IHOP. Oh my gosh. When you're working as a collaborator with these people, how do you encourage the stories out of them or do they just start pouring out? Well, I think that these guys in particular have been public their whole lives because they were child actors. 
So yeah. the issue with them is that they've been telling versions of these stories their whole lives, and they're very locked in. And sometimes they're so locked in that it it, it becomes almost not a memory, but an autopilot uh, retelling yeah. of a story. So I kind of sometimes had to ask them to stop and deconstruct it and break it down. No, go back to that time and think about how you really felt. Like, what did you feel? And, and, and you know, it, it, but ever they're they're super willing participants in this process. And then, um, and they're both excellent storytellers anyway. So, so uh, I, I really enjoyed that process. I mean, thank God I had it because I would have gone nuts and and had no money during lockdown. So <laughs> it was a wonderful project. <laughs> Sounds like good on a lot of levels. Before we get deeper into the world of your crazy world, I think we should start here with cookies because I'm going to be making cookies today. You're not, but that's okay. Um, because you you inspire these cookies because the thing that everybody out there should know is that David and I both are children of the greatest state in the union, that of the Garden State, New Jersey the most put upon ever. And yet one of the greatest places also, among other things, to grow up, but also to get pharmaceuticals and free in the water, but also to eat. I really think oh, yeah. it's one of the great places in the world to eat. And you and I started talking about New Jersey food. I've been working, I've been working in Jersey food for a while now. I've been uh, writing about food in New Jersey professionally for about I don't know, 10 or 12 years. And it's afforded me fantastic opportunities to drive to places I've only ever heard of in New Jersey and eat pizza for three months straight and still love pizza. I mean, that's the joy of New Jersey. I mean, if you did that in Iowa, I don't know if you'd come out loving pizza with all the well, respect well, to Iowa. One thing, and we'll get to your cookie in a moment, but one thing <laughs> that speaks to what, to what you're talking about is that New Jersey is the most densely populated state in the nation. and. Yes. As such, you have all these businesses cheek by jowl, all these uh, different ethnic and cultural backgrounds cheek by jowl. So we took it as a given growing up that we could have Italian food, Chinese food, in my case, in central New Jersey, Hungarian food, Indian food. And not until I got to college and my freshman roommate was from Bozeman, Montana, did I realize how fortunate I was and how atypical that was as an American childhood experience to be exposed yeah. to all these cuisines and all these varieties, as you said, within a cuisine that you could have 12 different types of pizza, you know, just right. going from I, Essex, Essex County to Middlesex County to Union County. And on top of that, I could have Hunan Chinese food. I mean, while the rest of America was probably eating Cantonese inspired Chinese food, there was Hunan Chinese food in New Providence, New Jersey. I mean, I don't know if anybody, you know, on the map, you know, like that's very small town. Um, and Sichuan cooking at, this was like in the seventies and eighties. So, you know, yeah, and then, and then in, in Newark and Perth Amboy, there were these Portuguese restaurants where you could get a big bowl of mariscada, which is like a fish stew for those of right. who don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was, the, I remember my uh, friend's father, like driving us into Newark, into, in his Cadillac. And not stopping at any red lights because he was worried about the safety situation. Um, he was one of those kind of people, but he stopped and <laughs> we and we went and I remember just eating, never seeing so much food on a table. And that's really saying something when you come from my house um, where there was always a lot of food on the table. And the other thing, of course, was 
there was good Jewish deli food. And of course. a little a little bit of that remains. There's like one or two places, I did a story on it, where pastrami is still made the pastrami way and not like ripped open from a plastic bag and steamed for a while. Yeah, we had two in my childhood, Hockey's New Brunswick and Jack Cooper's in Edison, and they're both gone. So you have to oh. tell me where to go for, for New There's Jersey a- Deli next next time I visit my mom. <laughs> she would probably like that. Did she like New Jersey Deli food? Yeah, although my mom's too much of a health nut. You know, she, she, yeah. She's not like she would indulge our eating deli food. But I think we need to talk about cookies because your podcast listeners really want to hear what cookie you're making. And I think that you have a New Jersey theme to this cookie. I have a New Jersey and husband theme to this cookie because um, it is my wedding anniversary tomorrow. And my husband being British loves shortbread and loves ginger. So I've hey, incorporated. Hey, can I stop you right there? Please. My wife and I, our anniversary is Sunday. So oh. I think this is a New Jersey slash wedding cookie podcast, this episode. Which shouldn't be confused with wedding cookies, which are a whole different kind of cookie and very delicious as well. Yeah. Uh, but do go on. So sugar. Mr. So, Mr. Bates is English. Mr. Bates is English. Mr. Bates is English. I'm now holding up a log, a very large log of cookie dough because it's. <laughs> Uh, it contains candied ginger, crystallized ginger, cut up fine, and one of New Jersey's great exports. Would you like to guess what one of New Jersey's great exports is that would surprise um, our listeners from other places? It, it boggles the mind. It, it's, um, that was a really lame pun. Cranberries. <laughs> You're talking about cranberries. I am talking about cranberries. People think of Massachusetts, but let me tell you, cranberries, blueberries, from the fir- earliest Cultivated blueberries came from Hamilton, New Jersey. So what New Jersey makes, the world takes. Don't forget it. Um, Anyway, so I've made this um, very basic shortbread, though it does have some brown sugar in it, kind of boost the flavor a little bit, keep it a little more moist, and has crystallized ginger and cranberries. And it's one of those great slice and bake cookies. And um, I'm now going to slice it while we talk about one of my favorite topics, which is cookies. But you raised a really good question which is what would the New Jersey cookie be? And I think probably the only real answer is it would be a slice of pizza. But since... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was thinking about this too, because like, as we talked about it, like it's so culturally polyglot the state. And I think the most like stereotypical answer to the question, what is a New Jersey cookie would be that sort of Italian cookie plate where you have like the biscotti, those little rainbow cookies, um, yeah. The chewy amaretti cookies um, that come in those big tins, and and yeah. like the and my mom used to make, even though we were a Jewish family, these uh, <laughs> little pignol pignoli studded cookies. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so that's my image of like if I had to answer, what is the most New Jersey cookie? That would be my answer. But I think we need to work on this more, and I'd love if your listeners could could give us some feedback because now that you're in your your homage to New Jersey are these cranberries. So you're making a version of a New Jersey cookie, but maybe it's something that we have to Frankenstein together, Marissa. <laughs> I, I am all for that kind of, I'm for the Franken cookie, you know, mm. Prince Charles be damned. I am for the Franken cookie. Um, for me, the memory of cookies are those butter cookies that are filled with really, really old chewy jam and then dipped in chocolate and sprinkles. Those were a famous bakery cookie. 
Yeah, I mean, which um, is akin me. to the Italian cookie plate. I mean, that's kind it of is, awesome it is part. part it is it's it's the cookie that disappears first off the Italian cookie plate because and indeed, my, my um my grandfather Philip Camp was a baker who way before I was born had his own bakery in New Brunswick, New Jersey, but later on went to work for diners. And in those days, all the diners, you know, along the turnpike and the parkway, they had their own bakers oh. in the house. So the cookies were baked on the premises. And he made those cookies, those butter <gasps> cookies in, in chocolate and fruit. I never got to taste his baking because he retired before I was born. However, oh. one of his acolytes was a guy named Al Berkowitz, who um, came from the same town in Poland, but was that much younger that he was still actively baking at a diner in, I think, Somerset, New Jersey. And so Al would bring over these cookies were the closest I could get to tasting my grandfather's baking, uh, professional oh. baking, I should say. That is actually quite touching to me. And what could be more New Jersey than baking for a diner? That, yeah. I mean, mile high pie. You got to have mile high pie, you know? And, and, and all the Danish, like the blueberry Danish, the cheesecake Danish, and then the kinds with streusel topping, which Al yeah. Berkowitz in his accent called streusel. He said, Davey, I know you love the, I know you love the streusel. And he, so he, he just come right. over on Sundays with a giant box of pastry, which I ate by myself. And I don't know how I survived <laughs> that, but I did. You did. And it made you the person you are today. And it makes me respect you more. One of the things I wanted to do instead of actually baking cookies with you was to go through um, like a taste test of Entenmann's baked goods. Um, but you, you live, you live in some like, I don't know, aberrant wild West where they don't have Entenmann's, which makes me sad for you. What do you do in an emergency? Well, I go to like, I either bake my own stuff or I go to one of the wonderful local bakeries near me. Um, actually I split time between New York city and Connecticut and in New York city, of course you can still get Entenmann's, but I'm currently in Connecticut where I'm in the, more of a fry hoppers zone in terms of commercial bakery that that sort of rules, you know, like you know, a fry hoppers guy would take an Entenmann's guy out in this on this <laughs> turf. You know? I know, but I think Entenmann's would always win. Um, <laughs> we grew up. I, I maybe it's because I bake so much. Um, why I bake so much now? Because what I grew up eating was like Entenmann's, and I will say that you know I could make a raspberry twist coffee cake that would be fantastic and use just quality, quality jam and ingredients and butter and whatever, still not going to taste as good to me. As, as an Entenmann's ring Danish, let's say. That was a an Entenmann's thing. ring Danish. We had, we always got the uh, rectangular ones with the, the raspberry oh, cheese Danish. Right, right, right. And then, and then just that sheet of coffee cake with the, with the stroisel on top, in fact. You got to have that the stroisel another... on top. Yeah, and yeah. all these people who talk about New York coffee cake being the business, it's not New York coffee cake. That cake with the dense layer, the layer of streusel, that um, sounds like I'm talking to my father, the layer of streusel with only a little bit of baked cake underneath it, that that is New Jersey coffee cake. And that you can New get Jersey. some of the, I've, I've written about those too. You can get those, um, there's a place in Hackensack where you just get like these, I mean, they weigh more than almost me. Almost, but they weigh. <laughs> and they weigh. And you can really build I'm up leaving. your like muscles. <laughs> when I visit my mom in in Central New Jersey, and then I'm driving back to New York City, um, and I'm accessing the Turnpike. God, this is mm. as New Jersey as it gets. <laughs> Just Which before exit? I'm accessing it, um, this this would be exit ten. 
Um, <laughs> I'm actually, um, I passed in Edison on the right an Antonin's outlet store. <gasps> you can buy Antonin's <laughs> Danish and cakes cheap or cheaper than they already are. So maybe Wait. next time. Next time I'm there, I'll just load up and, and, and then go to your house instead. Exactly. And we'll probably, we have to eat them quickly because I'm sure they're like a little closer to being stale than the other stuff. You know? Well, they're outlet. They're outlet Danish. So, you know, of course. I'd do it. Um, I, we used to have the Entenmann's chocolate cake in my house. And my brother, David, if you're listening, I know it was you, would sneak into the refrigerator because my mother kept all food in the refrigerator to keep, I don't know, the deadly germs away from the preserved cake um, and you would go to sleep and there'd be a maybe a, a half of half the cake left and you'd wake up in the next morning and the chocolate icing off the golden cake the chocolate iced golden cake would have been peeled off and eaten by someone and I know it was you David I know that um, David Rothkopf but, you mean <laughs> David Rothkopf not, not, not you David yeah. Camp that's right. Yeah. No, you didn't sneak into my house in Summit, but New Jersey. I don't, I don't know if he's going to enjoy this because David Rothkopf is now a professional serious person. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think he, this is the image he wants you to be putting forth of him. It'll soften his image for people. I think maybe that's good. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Maybe. Anyway, maybe. Um, so... What, what if we're going to make our Franken cookie that's all New Jersey, there's a part of me that wants to go fancy. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to make like a cinnamon sandwich cookie because I do like a sandwich cookie, like a cinnamony, pecan, sandy, tender sort of cookie with cannoli cream filling. Oh, I like that. I mean, it'd be delicious. It, well, yeah, I think it, it inevitably kind of has to be pan cultural. So the cannoli cream is is a kind of nice Italian acknowledgement of Italian Americans, but I feel like I, I mean, what other cultures do we want to pan if we're being pan exactly? <laughs> I mean, taking some spices from a lot of the uh, Indians who came to this country, like mm. the Asian Indians who came to this country, they're like you cardamom mixes in beautifully into cakes. Right, that's a good cookies. idea. In my town, a lot of uh, a lot of Greek people. In fact, a guy who used to be WNYC's morning newsman, Sotirius Johnson, uh, was a good friend of mine. Sotirius was a good friend of mine growing up. Came from a Greek family, and so you know, with him, I'd have Greek food, and you know, there's all sorts of good Greek confectionery going on. There's baklava. There's that wonderful Greek rice pudding. Um, so, I mean, maybe I'm and overcomplicating. I well, I think Satirius would probably pronounce it better than I am. But then there's also the kind of Greek wedding cookie, speaking of weddings, called Kurumbiedis. And I can't really know how it's pronounced, but it's a nut butter cookie that's then rolled in powdered sugar, which comes, I mean, that is sort of the universal cookie. They have it in Mexico. They have something like it in Austria. They have something like it in Greece. So I don't know. But Or does it need to have the flavors of New Jersey? Should it be made with... <laughs> Blueberries Dioxin? and cranberries oh. <laughs> <laughs> and dioxins. <laughs> and just, I like to grind up a little Lexapro on top of all my cookies because that's, that's not New Jersey be... though. That's, that's Jewish. That's something else. Yeah. <laughs> but I think all the pharmacies in here, you just walk in with a Lexapro prescription and they're like, yes, ma'am. I mean, they just like have a dispenser, like you put a quarter in outside and they it dispenses Lexapro to people. 
Well, I'm glad it's, it's, it's Mental Health Awareness Week at the Secret Life of Cookies. Um, it is I'm, mental health awareness. <laughs> thank you for your acknowledgement of that. I'm normalizing it. I've just put the cookies into the oven where they need to live for at least uh, 12 minutes. And, and Marissa, for those of you listening at home, has the most beautiful tile work behind her exhaust hood. And um, <laughs> she's clearly an affluent person because, you know, I could never <laughs> afford such tile work. Says the man with an oil painting of himself behind him in his. By my post- grandfather <laughs> who worked for the Civilian Conservation Corps. This is not the Baker grandfather. The other grandfather on my mom's side was a poor, struggling artist who was out of work during the, the Depression and basically worked the rest of his life for the CCC, one of the alphabet agencies established by Franklin Roosevelt. So don't you try to put posh on me. <laughs> The uh, Franklin, I'm just going to blow right past this. Um, <laughs> so your your family would pronounce it Franklin Roosevelt, not Roosevelt. I think does, Roosevelt. Does anybody have, I, does I anybody have a read on I mean, that? I always pronounce it Roosevelt. I think Roosevelt is correct Dutch pronunciation. It's like Moog synthesizer instead of Moog. Like we want to say Moog, but everyone I know in music and in the Netherlands says Moog. So I have to presume that's the correct pronunciation. People, you heard it here first. And would you like to deal with the GIF, pronouncing that correctly, too? I mean, No, I'm not going near that one because um, <laughs> the, the youth will come after me. The youth. I, I want to stay on the topic of New Jersey food. I'm, I'm a little thrown by, like, how you make the quintessential New Jersey cookie. So I hope that my listeners will chime in on this one. But you... You told a story on um, on Twitter this week that n- not enough people got to hear, and I want to share it here, which is about your nice Jewish mother and her perfect Italian ragu tomato sauce. And by that, I want to just point out that my mother made ragu, and it was the one with the yellow jar, in the yellow jar with the <laughs> yellow top. That was my mother's idea of really good tomato sauce. So you grew up better than I did. Tell me. Well, in, 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 in one certain sphere, which was Italian-American cookery, I took it for granted growing up that my mom could always make, you know, really, I wouldn't call it Italian food. It's really Italian-American food, which is really Southern Italian food, Sicilian and Southern Italy, yeah. because, because that's where the Italians, in, you know, in New, New Jersey and to some extent, New York City and, and Southern Connecticut came from. So I grew up with my mom made fantastic sauce, fantastic stuffed shells, lasagna, meatballs, all those things homemade from scratch. And, you know, I never contemplated it until I kind of later realized, hey, for a Jewish lady, this is pretty (laughs) extraordinary. Because in those days, you know, cooking was much more siloed, meaning you didn't really cross cultures. That came much more in the 60s, 70s, 80s when when it was permissible to do that more. Julia Child played a role in that and lots of other food writers did. Mm-hmm. So I spoke to my mom about this and, I, and, the, and the story is quite extraordinary, which is that before I was born and I'm the youngest of three and before my parents were even married when they were just a dating couple, mm-hmm. they were befriended by a couple called Joe and Mamie Ida. Last name is I-D-A. Mm-hmm. And they were a nice elderly childless couple lived in Highland Park, New Jersey, my hometown, rather well-to-do. And they just took a shine. They liked this young couple, my parents. 
And my parents were just dating at the time, not even married. And they had them over to dinner. They even had them to their house in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, by the shore. And my mother and father were not married yet. So like, and Mrs. Ida was a very religious Roman Catholic and made sure that they had bedrooms on the opposite side of the house. And I guess while my dad did sort of um, manly things during the day, maybe fishing and boating with Mr. Ida, Mrs. Ida would teach my mother how to cook, you know, her homegrown, homemade Italian stuff, her sauce, her meatballs, her, her uh, lasagna, et cetera. Okay, what they didn't know at the time was that Joe <laughs> Ida was the head of the Philadelphia mob. So even, even though he lived in central New Jersey, he ran Philly, for, for better or for worse. You know, his, one of, his successor was Angelo Bruno. But so this is all this is all circa the mid 1950s. And, you know, my dad, before he died, told me a version of the story where he said there was a famous raid. And if all of you listening at home, you can Google this. This is one of the most uh, consequential moments in the history of La Costa Nostra in America. There was a mob summit held by a gangster named Joe the Barber Barbara in his country house at his country house in a small upstate New York village called Appalachian, New York. and. Somehow, uh, the police got wise to the fact that this was happening, and they set up a blockade, and all these mobsters from all over the country were meeting for the summit, which, if you think about it, was tremendously ill-considered. You know, that's totally. In this country town, so like, wouldn't it be a giveaway if you saw all these flashy Cadillacs and Chryslers with fins and guys dressed like characters in Damon Runyon and like chalk-striped suits and, and, and spectator shoes? And, I've and, seen know, that movie. I mean, that movie's been done a couple times. And so times. anyway, they, 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 <laughs> raid, they, they raid Joe Barbara's house in Appalachian, and some of these guys fled on foot, which was comical, but eventually they were all rounded up. Joe Ida was among the gangsters who was rounded up there, and they detained him briefly. And the guy who, who drove him there was Russell Buffalino, who was another major, major Philadelphia or Pennsylvania mobster. Russell Buffalino is the guy who Joe Pesci played in the Irishman, the Martin Scorsese film, oh, wow. um, and 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 so it's it's just kind of funny that when a lot of people found that movie interminable because it was so long, and I loved it because to me it was a kind of marination in sort of like this primordial these primordial memories of what New Jersey was like in my very earliest years as a child in New Jersey. Um, yeah, that people looked like that and acted like that, dressed like that, and drove that kind of car. But anyway, long story short, Joe Ida, he's detained at the Appalachian raid and he's released. But thereafter, he flees back to Calabria, the toe of the boot in Italy, from whence he came. So basically, my my parents said, yeah. And then we never saw Mr. and Mrs. Ida again. But but we have the sauce. We kept the (laughs) sauce. So whenever I make tomato sauce, I kind of have to tip my hat to Mrs. Ida. And I guess by my connection, uh, like the Philly mob, which is, you know, I don't mean to glorify the mob, by the way. I, it's just, it's again, when we talk about New Jersey being the most densely populated state, it's that you're cheek by jowl with all kinds of people. And <laughs> being mob adjacent isn't a hard, isn't an accomplishment in life. It's a fact of life in New Jersey. Absolutely. I, absolutely. I think it's very well said. Here in Montclair, um, we are mob adjacent to the Sopranos <laughs> um, right, because, right. because they, I mean, they filmed at um, 
Colston's. That's the final scene. This film just down the street from me. And the, the high school is where my son is right now was filmed, was used for the soprano. So it's like real and imagined Cosa Nostra right here. And we're all, we all share in it, but th that sauce must be fantastic. Yeah. I mean, although it's honestly, I don't even have a recipe for it. It's all very intuitive stuff. It's just, yeah. it, it's just, it's Southern Italy. It's olive oil, it's basil, it's fresh plum tomatoes that you, you, you boil and you score, boil, shock, peel, all that stuff. Yeah. It's all pretty, you know, with garlic, of course. It's, it's, it's all intuition, but somehow it, it comes out better than any other tomato sauce. Garlic was sort of a shocking addition to food until, I don't know, probably the 60s, right? I think servicemen came back with like, I've had this food. It has this funny flavor to it, right? Well, to some degree, I mean, garlic was very much present in Italian-American cooking. And um, right, I, actually, in, in my book, uh, The United States of Arugula, I interviewed um, Judith Jones, the great cookbook editor, um, oh, wow. who was still alive in the early 2000s. She was the editor of Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child and her co-authors. She also was the editor of The Diary of Anne Frank. I mean, she, Judith Jones cut across. I didn't know that. Cooking. She was incredible. And she had Marcella Hazan. Judith Jones grew up in a very proper, uh, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant family. And she talked about to me how onions and garlic were beyond the pale, that like, like they had a cook in their house. And I think occasionally the cook endeavored to use garlic. And Judith Jones's mother was like, how dare you? That's, that's mm -hmm. uh, you know, vulgar. That's vulgar. That's it's too fragrant. And Judith Jones, to her credit, said like, my God, why would you wall yourself off from that for cultural reasons? Um, but you're right. The garlic was not something that mainstream America really enjoyed until the mid-century when it became yeah. more permissible. And even my dad talking about growing up in New Brunswick, because pizza was this exotic thing that initially, because his father was a Jewish baker, he knew the other bakers in the other neighborhoods. And there was an Italian bakery where you had to go to the back door on a certain day when they made this savory Italian pastry known as pizza. <laughs> and that was the whole thing. Back then it was like you had to know a certain date at a certain door to get this thing called pizza. And that's, that's it's just extraordinary how fast we've evolved from that. One of my favorite pizzerias in New Jersey is a place called, I'm pointing to it in case anybody wants to know. It's uh, up there. Uh, it oh, is off, just it's off the there. Garden State yeah. yeah, it's over there. It's right off the Garden State Parkway in uh, Garfield. No relation to the cat. Um, much more of a relation to Garfield, the president. In Garfield, which now has a huge Polish population um, where you can get great Polish food, it has a place called Pizza Town USA. And Pizza Town USA is, I, they claim to be, and one of the earliest pizzerias in New Jersey. Like everybody could go. Like, and the dad who was like, uh, who started the place, who I think is still with us, is, uh, and well into his 90s was like uh, driving fruits and vegetables, uh, doing deliveries out of New York City to New Jersey, saw a piece of land out there and was like, you know what? I should start a pizzeria. And this place looks exactly the same as it did. They still make their same, the, the dough themselves. The pizza cooks super thin and it cooks in six minutes. Super like they cut their own, they cut the cheese. That's wrong. Uh, they cut their own cheese which everyone should do themselves. And their pepperoni is cut into little triangular chunks. 
which <laughs> triangular <laughs> charcuterie. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look at you with your fancy New York words. But that was. Hey, I, I assimilated, okay? <laughs> I, I came from this, but I chose to assimilate. And this is who I am now, Marissa. <laughs> and that's one of the great things about America. And congratulations, yes. you've moved yes. away from New Brunswick. But it was maybe the mid 50s when this happened, mm-hmm. maybe ni- ni- around 1957. And before then, you wouldn't go out for a slice of pizza, you might have a bar pie inside a restaurant or a, a bar where pizza was beginning to be served in the late 40s when people came home from the war and they'd had this thing over in Italy, you know? So we haven't been eating takeout pizza for really, is it, I guess it's long now. Like to my kids, it would be far away, but to me, it's quite recent. Well, it goes back to that idea of being culturally siloed. I mean, I think until the mid-century, until the post-war era, we really stayed in our lanes in terms of like what we ate. You didn't really cross cultural boundaries that often. Right, right. Which is sad because the food of our people, really, I don't know. Are you, You're more Eastern European Jew, right? The Central Europeans. You, yeah, I'm a Central, Central European, European Jew. I'm Central, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. By Central, do you mean German? Are you, or what do you mean? Or do you German, mean German, German, <laughs> German, Austrian, really. Okay. With, you know, because because of- your people are meant to regard my people as scum because like the German Jews basically viewed the Eastern European peasant Ashkenazim as, you know, as the dirt, the scum you of met, Jewry. Um, you, you, and, and you met, you met my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> you met my grandmother. <laughs> well, but you're married to an Englishman. So I want you to play out for your play out music for this podcast. I want you to license <laughs> the song Common as Muck. By Ian Dury and the Blockheads, because to me, it's my anthem. Yeah, the chorus is like, we're as common as muck. And it, I, it just, I, I embrace that, being common as muck. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of uh, snide approach that my grandmother had to, my mother, mar- my mother was raised in the Upper East Side of New York. She went to the Dalton School, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they were the most assimilated German Jews. Like they helped start the Ethical Culture Society. Right. Right. Yeah. That, nothing nothing that, like that. <laughs> my, but, my, my, my great grandfather started the Unethical Culture Society. <laughs> it, was, it was on Handy Street in New Brunswick, and you were initiated by blood. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but kosher blood. It'd been koshered. Um, yes. Because uh, you guys still, like, you know, followed those Jewish ways. Anyway, so my father, this immigrant, comes and woos my mother right? Mostly married her, I think, for her books. That's what I, the story I was told. Probably he loved her too. Um, no, no. <laughs> but at the wedding, my grandmother, the wedding was held in their Upper East Side apartment on Madison Avenue, just down the street from where the Guggenheim is now. And uh, my grandmother wanted to appeal to the peasant parents of my father. And so as musicians, they had an accordionist. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which, well, what, what was the like, music like? Was it like klezmer? Or what are we talking about here? I, have, I just think it was like, you know, regular music, you know, music of the day, but played on an accordion. I don't mm-hmm. know. But there was lobster salad. Wow. What a misstep. <laughs> what were the cookies? 
<laughs> you know what the cookies were? No, I'm sure I'm sure they were from Ellen's Bakery on Park Avenue. So I'm just trying to think um, like New Jersey cookies, because we really do have to nail this down. Like, what did my mother bake that was a signature cookie? But, you know, my mom she made chocolate kind of chip like cookies. A, she made chocolate chip cookies, but she was a progressive baker who like was into Julia Child and Molly Katkin's Moosewood cookbook later on. And so I'm just trying to think of like, did we have anything that was like acutely New Jersey? And no, it was more like aspirational. In fact, when it was, another person I did a collaboration with was Martin Short, um, star of yeah. Only Murders in the Building, which is a great show. The biggest hit and, going on. And I worked with Marty on his book. And you call him Marty. That's, that's what he actually goes by. I worked with Marty on his memoir, which is called I Must Say. And we went to his, we worked, did a lot of work at his summer house in a, on a lake in Canada, um, oh, in wow. the harbor country, so the cottage country, they call it up there. Mm-hmm. And he always had under a cake dome, these lovely Canadian butter tarts. <gasps> and do you know what a butter tart is? It's I do. But... It, oh, yeah. It, it, Go on, please. It, please. It, it's, um, it's a filled cookie. You know, it, you're basically making a kind of a, a shortbread in a muffin tin, and then you fill it with this kind of gooey pecan pie-ish filling, kind of syrupy. And if you make a butter tart correctly, it has a nice crunch on top, but it kind of it's kind of runny when you bite into it. Super rich and super delicious. And they're large because they're baked in muffin tins. And my mom made a version of that as a, when I was a kid. Not, And I didn't realize that it, it was a relative of a Canadian butter tart, but I don't even know where she got that recipe. I think she just called them butter cups or something like that. Well, it's but they were awesome. Name. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the British make something called treacle tart, which very has similar, very similar and yeah. so delicious. You know, the more I think about it, and the more we talk about the Italian cookie plate, the more I think that maybe it really it can't be one cookie. Maybe it has to be a cookie plate. That's fair. But I think we because have to like we have to revisit this for another episode of your podcast because we, we're not going to figure it out here. But I think that we also have to invent it. To some degree, I think I like your idea of a mixed cookie plate that has a little bit of everything of New Jersey's story. Because you know where my dad, my dad was a car salesman, and where his car, where the dealership was, where he worked, that neighborhood is now completely Mexican, and it is wow. just wonderfully chock a block with bakeries and restaurants, and also not just representing some narrow band of Mexico. It's like it's got. Jalisco and it's got Oaxaca. It's like it's it's got like it really represents different. I actually need uh, enlisted the help of a Mexican American friend to help me navigate it because I felt I was underqualified to even approach these places without some some inside knowledge. So she took me around, and um, oh my God, the variety there is fantastic. But just that palimpsest nature of New Jersey, where you. One culture overlays another, which overlays another, which overlays another. So that neighborhood had been a Hungarian neighborhood. Then it became a West Indian neighborhood. There was a place when I was a kid there called Finger Lickin' Beef Patties, which is a Jamaican <laughs> Jamaican patty place, which is the first time I ever had, you know, Jamaican food, essentially, the meat pies and those wonderful pastry wrapped savory patties. And now it's Mexican. And, and my God, it's like that should be a book in and of itself. Yeah, it's just food of New Brunswick, you know, and also just like kind of the the geology of a neighborhood, the food geology of a neighborhood, you know, and wonder what lingers. Because I know that if I want to get some good Hungarian salami or Hungarian um, sausages, I go to New Brunswick. I still will do that. There's still vestigial 
still vestigial <laughs> little Budapest there. Um, yeah. well, that's Romania. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Budapest. No, Budapest is uh, Hungary. Buddha oh, okay. Pest. I got. I got it right. Why am I doubting myself? Sorry. I don't know. It's just because you're in the presence okay. of my greatness. I think probably. Yes. Yes. No. It is. It is of course Budapest, and I, I'm just. It's the pandemic has given me pandemic brain, and and sometimes I don't trust my own instincts. Are well, your cookies sounds, ready, Marissa? Yes. It also sounds ready? just like Bucharest. Um, yes. There you go. There you go. See, so it's not so far off. Um, my cookies are ready, and they are beautiful golden brown beautiful circles and they're dotted with uh chopped up cranberry which looks almost like chocolate chips which may disappoint people when they get up close to them because it's, nothing is more disappointing than thinking that you are getting a chocolate chip cookie and you get something with fruit in it no i kind of disagree on that sometimes because we're so deadened to uh expecting chocolate chip cookies that i've come to enjoy the surprise and those look wonderful by the way they smell good too what kind of crumb do they have? They, they have a very delicate crumb. They're still very warm, though I will break into them. They do. They have a beautiful yeah. crumb. They have a, they, there's no egg in it. So it no, just and, a and for nice listeners, it, 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 it broke beautifully without, uh, without crumbling. It just without, broke. There is no crumbling. That is very true. And there looks to be. And that's, a, that, an, that's a good trait. It's true. Um, one, I think they will harden a little more as they get cooler. And they'll lose their flowery taste, which is, I think, what they have now. But they think they should have a strong ginger taste as they get older. Mm. <laughs> I'm making happy face. Um, the brown yes. sugar makes a real difference in a shortbread. Yes, as it does in a butter tart, by the way. You know, people approach them differently. Some people just use maple syrup. And I think a truly good butter tart needs to have brown sugar. And when we do the butter tart episode, we can... We can mm. uh, Test we, ju approaches, we just missed Canadian um, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, a, indeed. A good opportunity to get all our best Canadian actors and actresses on and cook butter tarts. In fact, I, I emailed uh, Marty Short, Happy Canadian Thanksgiving, and he very tartly emailed back, we just call it Thanksgiving. Because, <laughs> yeah, for obvious reasons. You know. I guess that sort of makes sense. It's like, it's like say, ha saying Happy Jewish Hanukkah to you. You know, it's like... <laughs> But as Americans, we know there's only one true Thanksgiving. The OG Thanksgiving. May I ask you about the ginger? If you said yeah. you wanted to honor your, now your, your anniversary is tomorrow. Is the ginger some acknowledgement of your husband? Well, he is a bit of a ginger, as we say mm -hmm. in England. There is some ginger quality to him, but not so much of a ginger that he didn't have friends. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it's also a pun because your last name translates to redhead that is correct. so so it, it, many, there are many layers to this it's like new jersey there are many layers mm, to it yeah. he also i used to um when we were courting um we had no run-ins with the uh, mafia but this was cambridge england so mm, i used to make buy him little shortbreads i mean little gingerbread men oh so, how sweet Literally, very sweet. Yeah, literally, yeah. And put it in his um, little. They had little mailboxes called pigeon. So if if you were there. courting in, in Cambridge, did he pitch woo in an old fashioned way, like with <laughs> with with like a a little riverboat and a ukulele and all that stuff? Um, did he sing? Did he sing George Formby tunes to you, like when I'm cleaning windows? 
I, he did actually teach me the words to when I'm cleaning windows, um, which mm. we can sing on the way out of this. Uh, but uh, he did actually, our first date was in about the most picturesque place you can imagine, which is Grantchester Meadows. Mm. Um, the one of which Rupert Brooke, the first world war poet wrote about, um, will roses round the door, door, Speaking of Bucharest and Budapest, well, uh, I studied the First World <laughs> War and have like 12 degrees of uh, master's degrees in it. But anyway, um, Rupert Brooke, who wrote lovingly of the British countryside, he was referring to Grantchester and Grantchester Meadows. And that's where our love blossomed as the cam trickled by quietly and a cow lowed in a pasture. Uh, Ooh, I love us. the verb low. I love I when low is used as a verb. That made that made my day. That's better than the cookie, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> and uh, hopefully he will low with happiness. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like a cow. My husband's a cow. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, my husband is no bull. Um, let me ask you one more, uh, a few more questions. Um, one is about Marty Short, actually, because he has this trait in, I, I think my favorite performance I've ever seen of him is in Only Murders in the Building. And I love that he's always eating dip. I'd like to get his dip recipes. <laughs> but it, does he, like, why dip? Like, do you have any idea? Like, he's always, you know, he only eats dip. Right. I, I haven't asked him, but he and Steve Martin are really good friends. And obviously, Steve Martin created the show. And if I think about it, I think Steve probably noted this quietly as a trait true to who Marty is. Because Marty's actually not a big food guy. Like I think part of the reason he's still so svelte at age 71 is that he is one of these guys who's just kept in excellent shape. Um, because he's unlike you and me, he he's not thinking about eating all the time. When he does eat, when he does eat, he likes to he does like dips. So if I think about it, like I think what he really likes is kind of the cocktail hour when you either have you a glass. You'll have a glass of wine, and he'll put out like like a wedge of you know some soft cheese, and then he'll put out either hummus or guacamole. And um, <laughs> when you're in Canada with him during the summer at his lake house, his his tipple of choice is rum and ting, T I N G, which is a Jamaican soda, kind of a Jamaican lemon lime soda, rum and ting with dips. So I think Marty is is a guy who mostly likes dips more than he likes you know a proper dinner. So I think Steve probably quietly noted this and incorporated <laughs> it into the Oliver character on Only Murders in the Building. But I will I will fact check that for, for later you. reference. I have to say, I have never forgotten a meal. I just haven't. Who is a meal? Was he your first lover before Mr. Bates? <laughs> that's we're, we're, I, that's for uh, not uh, not uh, today, not before my anniversary home record. Before before Mr. Bates in Cambridge, there was there was Emil in Bucharest. Ah uh, yes, Emil, he was a wonderful lover. I have never forgotten a meal, certainly. <laughs> yeah. And I I always and I come from a family where, I mean, your mother was sort of a health food person, but did you also talk about like? But she still liked to eat, right? Yeah, and my father. I mean, let's be clear about this. My father was a big guy loved to eat. And part of her investment in health food was not just the way the culture was trending. It was to save his life. He, <laughs> he, was, he was in the mid-70s, someone who was like eating 
you know, red meat all the time. And he, he was overweight and he, he smoked. We, we kids nagged him into quitting smoking. But I think that between that and my mom basically putting him on more of a moosewood diet, I think we extended his life by about 10 years. Oh and God. so, yes. But the point being is, yes, we ran the gamut of, you know, the most orgiastic fatty foods. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't strictly Molly Katzen's, you know, cashew carrot loaf and things like that. That's good. And wheat germ on everything. Well, wheat germ, I mean, let's be fair to Molly, because Molly talked about how she was trying to remedy or, or counteract what she called remorse cuisine. She said the idea <laughs> of health food before she started getting into that moosewood era was, was, um, was she said, was wheat germ and, and just mm -hmm. uh, steamed brown rice, steamed till it had no flavor left in it. She called that remorse cuisine. And that's what Molly was trying to overcome. But yeah, wheat germ. Wheat germ was a thing that a lot of, remember jogging was new. I mean, it's yeah. amazing to think that there were, there was a time when there was a guy, a, a Rutgers professor named Ronald Hyman, who jogged around my town in a, in a red sweatsuit. And there, was, there was the guy who jogged, the one guy. And it was like <laughs> the joggers were the ones who also had put wheat germ on their yogurt. And yes. yogurt at the time was spelled Y-O-G-U, no, Y-O-G-H-U-R-T, because it was still yes. an exotic ethnic food. So, uh -huh. so the, the story I'm trying to tell is just how in one or two generations, we've gone from, you know, really exoticizing foods to really uh, assimilating foods in a good way. Absolutely. I still remember the woman who brought in cupcakes into my second grade class that were chocolate cupcakes with chocolate frosting. I was so excited. And she sprinkled <laughs> wheat germ on top. <laughs> lady it's a cupcake you know yeah like let us just enjoy ourselves don't turn a cupcake into a remorse cupcake i got enough remorse afterwards you know what i that mean that is a david that's the title for a david sedaris anthology remorse cupcake <laughs> and other remorse. stories by david sedaris <laughs> okay david we haven't solved the cookie problem no, I think that this is a good open-ended podcast episode wherein we solicit input from readers on social media and uh, like and rate Marissa Rodkoff. And if you you know <laughs> click on the bottom of your screen, I'm gesturing <laughs> to the bottom of the screen, um, you, you can see our social media uh, <laughs> handles here. Tag us and tell us what you think a New Jersey cookie should be. Is it a pre-existing cookie or is it a cookie that should we Frankenstein a cookie or should we make it a, a variety pack, a cookie plate? And I think we should pick up this conversation in a future episode. I agree with you. I know I completely agree that we should do this. And I also think that New Jersey and food, as is my own tagline, New Jersey and food perfect together, stolen from <laughs> the famous New Jersey and you perfect together, Mr. Tom Kane, Governor Tom Kane. Where does that accent come from in New Jersey? I well, that so. is that is that is a, like a New Jersey Brahmin accent. When I always yes. it, it's almost like he got a Novocaine shot at the dentist. <laughs> New Jersey and you, perfect together. And I actually yeah, know I'm, I know his niece uh, or a niece of Tom Kane, and I think it's they, they are just high wasps. That's what. Yeah, that is. they're high wasps, like the Millicent Fenwick portion of New Jersey. Yeah, there is high wasps, definitely. Um, I think there is a room for a New Jersey podcast just all on its very own because it can appeal to New Jerseyans and non-New Jerseyans alike because there's no other place on the planet where you can get all the food from the whole world except New Jersey. Right. 
it's it, it, this is this is us being sincere here. It is so the variety there, and it's again something I took for granted until I left New Jersey to go to a school all the way at Rhode Island. If I never realized that we had it so good in terms of diversity, and and to this, and and then you go back and it morphs, it shapeshifts. Like now, um, Edison and, and Woodbridge, which are towns near mine, have become food-wise predominantly Indian. And again, mm-hmm. a great variety within Indian cuisine. So you can right. go on that corridor and have like, and you can basically tour the, the cuisines of India. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also, that's what's so special about New Jersey is it's not just like, we don't eat Indian food. We're going to have Bengali food. We're going to have Punjabi. Food. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing. That's why New Jersey's great people. I've been defending it for a long time and I will continue to do so. Um, and anything you do, I will defend that as well, David Camp. I mostly appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And um, we will go out and read all of your books and everybody's books and um, eat cookies. Think cookies, people. All right. You Thank know, you very you much, and David I and Camp. This, this podcast were, were perfect together. Yes, new, David Camp and Marissa Roadcock and New Jersey, perfect together. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please, oh, please find me on Twitter or Instagram and let me know what you think the ultimate New Jersey cookie would be. And have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and please eat cookies 